Welcome to the Silicon Slopes Conversation. This week we're joined by John Beckstrand, who is the CEO of Master Control. How are you? I'm great. Glad to be here. Yes, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're busy. Um, we will open it up for Q&A from the audience in the end. Uh, so if there's any questions you'd like to ask that weren't addressed. Also, Slope Summit, September 29th and 30th. With that, let's start with, for those that don't know, if you give a quick summary of what is Master Control. Yeah, I think the best way to describe Mastrol and what it is is to think of the last time that you went to a hospital and think of the products that were used in your care. So you're probably stuck with something, had something inserted in your body. Some people actually had a pacemaker, a device, a drug, you know, all these products that were used in your care. But most likely you didn't think about whether those were good products. You didn't think about the quality of them, right? Because that's something that we are lucky enough to take for granted. And it's because of the people that we sell our product to, right? Quality managers and manufacturing operators who built and, and maintained the quality of that device. And the way that they do that is uh, they, uh, well, it's regulated, so they comply with what's called GMP regulations, which is part of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, right? And in order to comply with GMP, they have to, this is really exciting stuff, right? Um, uh, very exciting. They have to document their process. They have to make sure that people are trained on their process. And then they have to show that any changes that, that uh, they make to that process are controlled and they're dealing with any events, external events that would uh, precipitate change, like uh, an adverse event, a customer complaint, a supplier change, a supplier nonconformance, and so forth. And so, uh, and also they have to um, manufacture, it, manufacture it in a way where they're documenting the process all the way through and, and handling all the issues that may come up. So that's, that's kind of what we do is we help those quality manufacturing professionals comply with those regulations and produce that quality product and build that societal trust in healthcare that we all get to take for granted, so. Very cool. Great explanation. I was in the hospital last week, um, but my wife was having the baby, so I was just sitting in a chair. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, there were, there were needles, there were monitors, there were beds, uh, and I know for a fact the process control works on the bill because they don't forget anything. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, but yeah, you're hoping that the IVs are clean, the needles are clean, everything's working well. But also, for those companies, translates to more revenue, less uh, lawsuits, all of that. And that's where master control would come in, right? Sure, and, and then also just getting products to market, period, right? Um, the regulatory burden creates you know, anywhere from two years to six months um, friction in getting a new product to market. So you think of all the innovations that are stacked up right now um, that, that we can all benefit from as a society, right? And those will all have to go through a, a pretty intense process of regulation to get to us, right? Now, with the COVID vaccine, that happened a lot faster than normal, right? And that's because there were a lot of politics behind getting that out very quickly. But that usually it takes a lot longer than that. And a lot of it is because of the regulations that, that need to be followed to get there. So uh, Mastral's mission is to, is to get great products to more people sooner, get life-saving, life life-changing products to more people sooner. And so we look at that, like you take like a cancer therapy that is uh, you know, in research right now, 
Um, can we you know, shave six months or a year off the process to getting that to market? And you think of like, for example, maybe it's a lung cancer therapy, all the people that have lung cancer within that six month window, all of a sudden they get the new therapy. So that's how we kind of make real, our mission a reality is what we're really trying to do is just shorten that regulatory process and also you know, prevent any quality issues from happening as well. And that's kind of maybe uh, toward the future of what we're trying to do, so. Yeah, in a previous life working for a venture fund, uh, if there was two deals that came across and one was like pharma or biotech and the other one was not, I would inevitably take the other one because even in due diligence and investing with those regulations, it's a lot more complex, let alone the companies that have to live in that world. And those are who your, your clients are. Like they have a few more hurdles to jump than most. Sure, that you take the science and, and the regulation and, and the time it takes, it, it, it definitely, from a, a, a funding standpoint, especially on the, on the drug and therapy side, it, it takes a lot to get one of those products to market, so the financing profile is definitely different, for sure. Yeah, and I would have a lot more empathy with those types of, of companies and employees because um, they kind of have like three bosses, you know, it's the FDA, the shareholders, whoever it is, uh, whereas like a, a shoe company wouldn't. And um, what are some of the, the innovations and products that you guys have used to help over the years these companies? Well, um, so just to start out, um, uh, one thing that you that, that is not generally known, and I think people are pretty surprised to hear this, but until about 2002, you couldn't use an electronic document in a, a healthcare product manufacturing process um, until there's a, a, a regulation called 21 CFR Part 11 that passed. And we'd been around for like uh, uh, five, seven years at that point. And this allowed us to pivot um, we, uh, uh, our, our efforts toward life sciences companies where um, quality and regulation is a lot more important. But so at that point from, from 2002, Till now, um, they've basically been able to digitize all this quality and manufacturing data that there was in paper before. And when I say in paper, literally because of the way that document control works, they had in many facilities, they had them locked in a file cab cabinet, locked in a room with one person to access that because everything was a controlled copy. So moving from there to a point where it's digitized and the business can actually look at this quality of manufacturing data from a digital perspective. That, the biggest thing that, that we've been able to do is just uh, take the inefficiencies out of the process um, so far. Um, the next stage is really enabling our customers to be able to use that data to make more intelligent decisions. And that's kind of the next phase. I think where most of us are, most, you know, most companies digitize first, right? And now they're taking that data that's available and well, what, what does it tell me? That's kind of the phase we're at right now. Yeah. And so landing customers in the early days versus now, um, what was that like? Well, um, in the early days, uh, we really didn't have much of a market brand. I mean, we, we heavily focused on SEO and, uh, you know, we're really dependent upon our salesperson kind of winning the deal. Matter of fact, there's, there's one kind of uh, uh, point, I think back in like maybe 2005, where uh, we, we had had a quarter where there were like zero sales the whole quarter. And we were sitting there, it was like the last day of the quarter, the last two days, and we had an extended board meeting. And the first day of the board meeting, we we're talking about, you know, what we're going to do because it looks like, you know, we're really doing poorly. You know, where are we going to get our funding? And the next day, we had four large deals uh, close and we exceeded our number. 
And so the, the conversation completely shifted to, wow, we're, we're really great, aren't we? You know, now let's, let's go forward and continue to invest and push. So, I mean, I think, you know, in, in, you know, in the older, you know, back in the early 2000s, it was really about, like, you know, the, the results were kind of lumpy. Um, it was about uh, probably salesperson performance because we didn't have as much marketing uh, uh, muscle or brand muscle behind them, whereas now it's a lot more, um, you know, we're, we're recognized as uh, the category leader, and so it, it's, it's really about, like, keeping that position um, and, uh, you know, trying to do that same thing, having that one person win that deal, but having lots of great people that can win the many deals, so yeah. scaling that, right? Scaling. And the brand is, is much stronger behind that as well. Yeah, which helps. Um, you win the deal. Uh, in this example, what it, what happens after that? What's the onboarding like, and what's the relationship after? So, uh, traditional enterprise software uh, product, um, uh, our product takes anywhere from uh, three months to nine months to implement. It's got multiple multiple modules and multiple stages, um, and uh, so a customer will buy the product, we'll, we'll meet with them, we'll build a project plan. We'll implement it. Um, we'll go live, and uh, then you know work out any kinks, and uh, hopefully be successful and sell them either the next product or uh, sell the next manufacturing line or the next subsidiary or uh, whatever it may be. Yeah, and you guys have a an ROI calculator on your website that I went through, um, mostly just putting in numbers because the, the questions were new to me. Uh -huh. um, but that's like a good baseline you know, to set the hook with these folks. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. And it's interesting because we, we have um, two major product lines. One is, is, is directed towards quality. And uh, the quality product is really about uh, uh, helping our customers comply because they're going to get aud audited by the FDA, right? And so they need to have these process in place. Um, and so really that is a compliance sale. So the ROI calculator doesn't... Uh, we, we do ROI calculators, and we think it has a great ROI, but the reason for buying isn't necessarily the ROI. They have to buy it. They have to buy something. Um, then on the other side, our, our, um, our MES that helps um, integrate quality and manufacturing and, and, and uh, controls the batch record in the manufacturing process, um, that is, has a definite ROI, and that's sold to manufacturing, and you know, that's sold based on our ROI. And so that ROI cal calculator is very important in the manufacturing cell and... Uh, and it, it, it's interesting, I'll tell you a story about that. Um, we've been talking to investors lately, and, and uh, because we've done so much um, work on, on uh, the, the ROI of our manufacturing product, uh, uh, we were talking to them about the turn on the ROI, which, which, which the average turn on ROI for that product is eight months. So you can theoretically get it into your, your, your current your budget, right? Because it's going to save you money. And... Uh, Boy, immediately the discussion was always about the price. <laughs> if you can do an ROI in eight months, like let's let's increase the price, which it's it's always that you know that trade-off. So when you've got a good ROI, that's one interesting thing as you look at how much can you, how much how much value can you derive out of the value that you're you're delivering. So yeah, and the and the one that I went through again, just putting in arbitrary numbers, I would have saved sixteen thousand dollars. Sixteen thousand dollars, yeah. So we should definitely increase the price for you, for sure. <laughs> Bad negotiation on my part. <laughs> um, okay, so you've been the CEO since? Uh, I've been CEO since uh, 2002. 
All right. That is, in any time period, a long tenure, but in this day Yeah, I can age, say 20 years. It's like 20 years, like, kind of right now, actually. Yeah. If so, you worked for the government, you could retire at 20 years. I could, and, uh, yeah. I, I can't retire for master control. At least not right now. <laughs> um, yeah, that that's probably exceeds most CEOs' tenure. So with that, you've seen... This would be a 10-hour conversation with what you've seen over that 20 years, but... I'm interested in what you've seen as far as like the business model, uh, obviously creating new products, getting the value there, and building a team that is pretty big now. Um, as the CEO, the buck stops with you, and that's a lot to digest, but what are some tidbits that you learn over 20 years? Well, I think the first thing is is, is that um, I think any leader in a company for that period of time with that kind of a growth it, you may stay in the same role, but your job totally changes. Uh, I feel like my job is changing every year, every two years. Um, just the problems that I'm focused on and the, and the, and the issues within the business change. Um, you know, uh, early on, like some of the things that, that we, we, I mean, it, you go throughout every area of the business, right? You're transforming it. You know, as you go, like I think about like uh, finance, right? Going from like a bookkeeper to, you know, a team of finance professionals. What's that like, right? And implementing different products and and uh, trying to keep uh, all the information flowing during that time. Um, you think about like, for example, uh, our technical support team. Um, when I came to Master Control, it. I actually didn't start Mass Control. Um, uh, it, there were about 30 uh, employees when I came on board, and I went into the technical support team, and I asked them how many calls they'd filled the, filled the last week, and they're like, oh, I, we don't know. And I'm like, okay, here's a three-by-five card. You know, every time you answer a call, put a check on that. Let's kind of start the process, right? Until now, we use um, ServiceNow, and we have dynamic call routing, and we have multi-layer teams and so forth. So it just... The, the, the way it, it transforms kind of slowly. But the, the, I think the important thing is, and I'm still in that spot where I think everyone who's, who's part of a business, you see the way it's running right now, but you always know how it could run, right? And it's funny because every time we meet a milestone that we were you know, pushing and clawing to get to, it's like, okay, good. Now, there's where we need to go, and it's always clear that there's something better that you need to, to, to tackle. And so I think that's probably the process that we've seen uh, multiple times. I'll tell you one interesting thing about being CEO at a company for this long is, like, a problem will come up, and I'm like, ah, we've solved that problem three times. Like, why can't we keep that problem solved? Um, like, one of them, uh, the one, one of them think, that I think about is... Uh, one of the ways that we uh, expand is one of our system administrators that we've built, a, our system administrator of our product, we build a good relationship, will move to another company, right? And inevitably, like, like we have, have system administrators that have bought our product like four and five times, right? And these people are people we know really well and we've got great relationships with. So we've had this, this uh idea in place that we should never lose a system administrator. Like when somebody quits, we should know where they're going. We should be attacking that account and partnering with them and so forth. And there's been three different times where we've tried to make sure that has happened. And uh, just recently, 
And I was always the advocate for this, right? Just recently, uh, uh, that's been something that has, has been on our marketing team's goals, and I didn't ask for it. You know, and I'm like, I'm glad you're super concerned about it. I've solved that problem two different times already, and I hope you can solve it better than I did, right? But it is interesting that, that those things can come up over and over. That's 20 years, right? So Yeah. That's very interesting because uh, when you join a company at your guys' level, you're going to drink from wells that you didn't dig, right? Um, a lot of the pain has already been felt, and obviously you're joining to go to that next peak. Um, but I had never thought through, like, looking in the past and seeing, like, Groundhog Day, right? Like, oh, I remember this from 2008, 2012. Um, but that has to be additive for the new employees, right? Like, a little bit of a history of the growth? Um, sorry, what? For the new employees, that would be, like, additive and helpful to, like, have a little bit of a brief history of what you guys have done over the previous 20 years. Yeah, and that's, that's obviously really difficult because in every department you're going to have a different history and different problems you've tried to solve. And, and, uh, but, I mean, we definitely, like, uh, from an onboarding perspective, we talk a lot about the culture of the company and, and where we've been. Probably more overall culture and, and style than we do the specific departments. But, uh, you know, definitely um, having a team that's been in place for a while, it does allow us to, like, talk strategy like I'll, I'll give you an, another example um you know we we really uh we more or less won our market through seo right and i'm not sure you can do that as well today because everybody's doing it but but back in the early 2000s you know we hired a, a um a marketing uh, vp uh, his name's kurt Porat. he lived just right in this area and actually uh Another interesting thing that happens when you've been at a company for a long time is, is there's a lot of life events that happen, and Kurt actually passed away um, suddenly when he was working at Master Control, um, a big uh, uh, event for our marketing team to handle, um, very beloved at Master Control, but he was an SEO expert. And uh, so you think about um, that, the the... Um, all of the equity that he built with SEO and then bringing in a new marketing VP and trying to preserve that as, you know, uh, we moved to, to being brand-focused, which makes SEO harder, which, you know, tanked our SEO results for a while, but then they've come back, and then it's more sophisticated. Um, but uh, one of the things is, you know, you kind of lose some of the history in those changes, and I don't... It's hard to keep it, and sometimes, honestly, it's better to let the history go and move forward with the talent that you have, too. So, yeah, Absolutely. And um, there's a lot of CEOs that can't cross the chasm from, you know, whether it's 200 employees to 400 or this amount of revenue. Um, what are some of the leadership principles and team-building principles that apply at teams of 50, 100, 500,000 that in your mind are like across the board? Well, I think the first thing is, is, is as a CEO or as a vice president, um, there's one of the things I think a lot about is, is how um, an organization scales. And if you think about like your average organization or like, I like to use the number 10. If you have 10 people working for an individual, right, you can have basically 111 people with, you know, two 
two tiers, right? Um, a CEO, 11 people, and then 110 working for them. I guess that's 112 or 10 people. Sorry, it is 111. Um, but it doesn't actually work like that. But if you think about that, as you scale, you add layers into the organization and you add leadership and hopefully you design it right. So it's, it's got good, good leverage on your leadership. But, you know, a CEO's job at a startup or a company maybe under 100 people is really managing a group of managers. And so, like, the people that you're talking to are making the changes. You go and do an offsite and you have your team together and you come back, that leadership team is completely aligned. Right, um, you get somewhere in the 200 to 300 range that no longer happens. You go do an offsite, you all agree to something, and you need to go convince so and so, who's a critical part, that this should be the strategy. And uh, so you end up the the job of the people that working that are working for me changes, where they're now like everyone working for me now is doing the job that I was doing five years ago in terms of they're leading a group of 100 people. Or, or more, right? And so now, now you got to get all those people together, which is not feasible to agree to a strategy, right? And so, um, you know, how you uh, hire, um, train, involve uh, those leaders gets to be really important. And uh, we had a, a this is kind of going to be a run on answer, if that's okay. Um, there was a point uh, three years ago where um, we had, a, so it's pre-COVID, we had all of our employees um, uh, in a ballroom having dinner for our year kickoff. And uh, I just realized there were so many people that I didn't know there. And also, there were so many people that I didn't know what experience they were getting at Master Control, right? Um, a lot of them, I, was, I think I was talking to maybe 100 of them uh, for the maybe the first time or one of the first times. And it... It, it made me think, like, I just don't, I don't know if so-and-so is coming into Master Control and feeling the love and feeling the culture and understanding what we're trying to do. Uh, um, and uh, so I actually, um, from that meeting, I, uh, I advocated and we built uh, what, what was called an employee bill of rights, and it was what you should be able to expect from your leadership. And it was, it was actually couched as a bill of rights. And uh, it was kind of a message to all the employees and all the leaders. Look, this is what we expect from, this is our leadership brand. This is our leadership culture. Um, we actually ended up realizing that bill of rights wasn't very uh, translatable outside the US. <laughs> so we changed it to our leadership code. But um, that's, that's a major initiative at Master Control right now is, is building the leadership principles and a leadership brand and a style that we can, you know, count on kind of to, throughout the leadership team, which now it, it, it numbers, you know, around 150 people. So it's a big, te big team. Yeah. So I think one of my nephews just started a master control recently. So he would have had, here's what you can expect from your leaders instead of here's what we expect from you. Or uh, both, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, definitely uh, in our our uh, in our quarterly company meetings, we'll be talking about the leadership code, and we'll be talking about aspects of it. We also have um, uh, training that uh, we're giving to the leaders. I hope that he knows what our leadership code is and that it's affecting his job in some way, for sure. But also, I hope that that he's like, hey, if I want to be a leader at Master Control or I want to be a business leader, 
here's a curriculum that I can, I can, I can start to read these books, I can see them in practice, um, and uh, start to understand like what, what works well, uh, at least what we think works well for leadership, so. Yeah, so you mentioned kind of the, you know, the one employee, and now you're in charge of a team of 100 that you used to do that job. If that's done incorrectly, I would assume it would end up back on your plate, and then you'd go back into like problem solving and managing. Well, yeah, I mean, that is a, a, a huge part of my job is uh, making sure that we have good leadership and uh, also correcting problems where, the, where, there, where there are problems. And it's interesting, we, you know, a, a lot of times we don't think of the cost of, of, of poor leadership or poor interpersonal relationships on our business. I can tell you it is a huge cost. Um, if we bring, and we have a really distinctive culture. Our culture is, is um, it's, it's performance oriented, but it's a high trust culture. Um, we really talk about treating people as people, not as objects. We use the Arbinger Institute books, uh, Leadership and Self-Deception. I mean, if you come into mass control as a leader and you think you're gonna go just tell everyone what to do and they're gonna just serve your needs, it's not gonna work and pretty soon, I'm gonna be dealing with that problem, right? Because um, we're gonna we have a really valuable workforce, and they're gonna see it as really weird, and uh, uh, you know they'll even slack me and let me know, you know. And and uh, but so a lot a lot of my job uh, when things aren't going well is talking with those leaders, um, helping them to understand what what we view as effective leadership at Master Control, which I don't. Sometimes people talk about it like our culture is specific or weird in some way. I don't look at it that way. It's just good leadership to me, right? And uh, I mean, leaders, you know, they should lead through influence, not through power, right? And if you want to look at your your the scope of your uh, leadership within an organization, don't look at where you sit on the org chart. Look at the influence that you have, right? And uh, that's really what we're getting at by uh, with leadership and self-deception. That's kind of what it's it's about um, is is leading through empathy. But uh, it definitely is a a, a a a large part of my job to go find out where we're not succeeding. And you know, hopefully though, um, if if we're hiring right and we're we're um, uh, encouraging our culture and 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 teaching people about that leadership culture, hopefully there's there's not as much of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, in this market, still frothy, um, but a lot's changed over the last couple of years. How do you guys go about finding talent? If you have a positive interaction at the grocery store, somebody that's like really squared away and great, do you tell the HR team? Um, ultimately, how do the interviews go and who makes the final decision on hiring? Um, yeah, it, it, funny, funny, you talk about the grocery score, store. Um, I, I uh, last uh, last presence day, I was skiing with my son, and so it's busy. So of course we're hitting the singles line, and so multiple times that day, I had um, really qualified candidates on the lift, but I didn't close the deal fast enough. You got to get there really quick because you only have till the end of the lift because you can't follow them down the run, right? That's kind of weird. But uh, no, I mean we're we're constantly looking. But I think you know for us uh, we have a a philosophy of in-house recruiting team. Um, uh, we sell our culture really hard. We also uh, uh, have you know re referral bonuses. We hope that 
when someone comes into master control. I mean, we're not as, we, we haven't raised money, right? And so we're not on the radar um, uh, in the, the Valley quite as much. Um, you know, we're, we're 750 employees and, and we'll be at uh, nearly 150 million in ARR at the end of the year this year. So we're, we're, we're pretty sizable, but, but uh, we, we kind of been, have been quiet. And so uh, a lot of it is, you know, bringing a, a great engineer in. We want them to see our culture and feel like, man, this is a great place and to, to, to um, go talk to their friends. And so referral bonuses is a big part of what we try to do. But, um, you know, um, our recruiting team is definitely talking to everyone uh, that we can. And, uh, but we've been pretty successful. We've, we've, I, we've hired over 100 people over already this year. Um, and uh, I think I, I probably am shortchanging my, my recruiting team. I don't know the exact number, but they're great. It's a lot. Um, you mentioned the Bill of Rights not translating well internationally because you guys have a, a lot of offices outside of the United States. And for a lot of people, I mean, in this example, it's not for the faint of heart to do international business. Um, again, it's a lot to talk about. What, what are some of the experiences you guys have had in doing that? What is a quick like process and system to do that? Well, there are a lot of a lot of uh, of technical things related to international business that we could go into. What What do you specifically? What do you think we're most we're most interested in? How do you decide ultimately? Like, all right, let's be in Singapore. Let's be in Italy, um, and then that's like the easy part. And then after that, you've got currency exchanges, different rules, different regulations, different time zones. Uh, what is it like ultimately having? You kind of have to worry wherever the sun is up. Right. Well, I think, I think uh, international expansion should be part of your evaluation of your TAM, your total addressable market, right? And, uh, you know, um, for us, since we're life sciences focused, right, and we really kind of grew up as a mid-market focused company, right, um, definitely being um, in Europe and, and uh, then Japan and then Asia was like in that order was really important for us, right? Another thing, if you're selling to an enterprise, eventually they're gonna drag you. You know, if you sell to, to larger companies, they're gonna need multinational uh, representation. So um, I would say that any international expansion needs to be evaluated against the other opportunities to expand, either um, if you're in a, a small to medium to large, like the, the size of company or product adjacencies, um, uh, or uh, industries, or even um, uh, the disciplines within the industry. Like we sold to we sold to quality managers for a long time. Now we're selling to manufacturer that, manufacturing. That was a significant market expansion. So, to me, um, a geographic expansion is just a similar decision to any of those. Um, and uh, if if my customers weren't demanding, if like if like I were just selling to customers that weren't in multiple geographies, I'd probably think hard before I would uh, uh, try to attack uh, another market because then you don't have your customers to drag you over there. You're doing it um, from scratch. Yeah. Uh, I've got one, one or two more questions, then we'll open it up to the audience. Um, as the CEO over 20 years, um, it's been talked about a lot. Sometimes it might get lonely. Uh, there's going to be a lot of problems that end up on your desk, a lot of uh, future plans, a lot of future growth. You're in charge of a lot. What do you do personally when it might not be clear what the answer is, or if you just want feedback or advice, what do you do? 
Well, I mean, I definitely uh, partner with my team. I have some, some teammates that have been around for a really long time. Um, our chief culture officer, Alicia Garcia, has been for over 10 years. Matt Lowe, our, uh, who's currently our, our chief product and marketing, but also has done sales um, and actually worked as a product manager before that. Um, you know, our, our chief revenue officer, uh, uh, Dave Edwards, has been around for a long time. So, like, I think definitely being able to partner with your team. And uh, I, I don't think that, I mean, definitely there's an element of, like, hey, this is my decision. And, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to deal with it. And some things you can't partner on. But definitely partnering with my team is a big part of that. Um, I mean, the other part is just uh, maintaining uh, uh I, I, I do yoga, so I got a lot of ways to like kind of reset, outlet, think things over, um, you know, get myself in a good spot. Um, you know, I don't, I, I probably would, would, would like to have more mentors. That hasn't worked as well for me to reach out to other CEOs, and we don't have any investors. So my father is the chairman of the board. He's definitely someone that I can go to with anything, right? Because we, we kind of share in every problem. Um, but uh, he's also not involved in the business as much, so you know sometimes it's not, you know, the best thing to go to him. So, uh, but but there there is an element of like, yeah, it's a little bit lonely to make some of the decisions for sure. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you've mentioned a few times uh, bootstrapped, no investors. Is that possibly going to change in the future? Um, yeah, we've actually. Uh, been in a process over the last year. It's funny because like we, we actually started a process of bringing in uh, our first investor um, and uh, right right as uh, inflation and the Iraq war, we were right in the middle of our process right there. And so uh, we had, um, you know, all of the big private equity names that we're talking to, um, you know, uh, right in the, the middle of the May timeframe when all of our tech IPOs went down 60% and valuations changed. So, you know, the process has taken a lot longer. So we've kind of like been really introspective about like, okay, is it, do we want to really um, bring our first investor in, in, in a market that's, I don't know, you could argue whether it's adjusted or it's gone back to the mean. I think everybody has their own opinion about that, but we're a pretty scare, scarce asset. Right, um, uh, you know, reached 100 million of annual recurring revenue without any other investors. So it's it's a really a lot of interesting conversations. But uh, yeah, we're we're still in the thick of it, and uh, you know, uh, we 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 may end up doing a deal this year. If not, we'll probably wait to see the market adjust a little bit and uh, go out next year. So yeah, I think you guys would have to be an outlier. I could be wrong. You know, looking for money. 20 years down the road instead of two minutes after you got your pitch deck ready to go. Yeah, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely different, but there actually are a lot of companies out there. There's, I mean, there's a lot of, of private equity companies who are looking for founders that have built businesses that are already substantial and they feel like they can come in and, you know, uh, you think of like a, a Toma Bravo or a Vista, like they're the ones that are really aggressive, right, where they go and, and, and have like a playbook of how they improve your company, right? So they have these teams when they go and, uh, and buy control, control interest because they can go change the company around however they want, right? 
but but um, when you look at a minority interest, those those same kinds of companies like the Blackstones, Carlisles, Baines, so forth, they're all looking for uh, minority investments so they can apply those operating assets to really help you know build the teams as well. So it's been it's been an interesting uh, ride to to go through that. So yeah, the uh, that those types of transactions with the names that you just mentioned. Um, very nuanced, but like they do not mess around. Like they're pretty dialed in. Their playbooks have been pretty, pretty well defined. So it sounds like that'll be a, like a really fun journey. Um, cool. Well, we're gonna open it up for questions from the audience. We have a microphone running around. So just raise your hand if you've got questions for John, please. Hello. Uh, just wanted to ask. Uh, this might be a little off subject, but just like what of the 20 years experience of being a CEO, like. What was one of your biggest failures that you've experienced, like that you've learned the most from? Oh, geez, I know what my biggest failure is, but I don't want to tell you guys all about it. <laughs> it's too embarrassing. But uh, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll talk about it without giving specifics. But I, I've had, you know, it's funny. As a smaller company, you can you, you can do a lot of things that you can't do as a larger company. Right, because you have relationships with all the people, and they kind of understand where you're get where you're going, where you're coming from. And so early on, you know, mass controls, uh, uh, it's it's culture. There were a lot of practical jokes, and I ended up taking a, a practical joke a little too far, and had to call a lot of people, and personally apologize to them. And uh, to this day, you know, I'm like my HR director, oh, why did you let me do that? <laughs> But, uh, you know, and it was all in, good, in, in trying to, there was a lot of things that were really successful and made people feel really great. Um, uh, uh, as an example, um, uh, one year, uh, this is not an example of a failure, this is a success. Um, one year, uh, mid-year, we, we had one rep that was just killing it, right? And so we, we made a joke that he was using performance-enhancing drugs and so we kind of, we like, as a joke, distributed, you know, they weren't real. But, uh, and at the end of the year, we actually had the police come in and arrest our team for using performance enhancing drugs. And then we got a picture of them in jumpsuits with the number that they hit, you know. I, that was, you know, I thought that was a pretty cool, you know, it was a practical joke and it was funny and nobody got bent out of shape, but... Uh, that's the one thing I learned is you, is you, is you, you get to be a larger company. Um, you got to be a little more careful, but also, man, you know, check yourself before you get in an organization. You got to be a little careful. Um, I would say, like, the one, one of the biggest learnings, though, that I've had is that um, uh, as you scale, problems reintroduce themselves. And then another one is that as you scale also and you bring leaders on, every leader represents both an opportunity for success and an opportunity for failure. And those are really, really critical, not just in the hire, but in onboarding and continuing to, to make sure that that leader is going to be successful. So it sounds like there might have been some fun times over the years. Yeah, there, there was some fun. Yeah, we don't have fun anymore, though. Actually, we still have some fun. It's just a lot more, uh, it's a lot less risky, let's say. Yeah. What are some of the biggest interpersonal challenges your managers face? Um, I think like like the thing that I've seen the most, and and um, uh, a lot of times when when someone comes into a leadership position, they've been kind of watching 
their leader, right? And they've been like, when I'm in that role, this is how I'm going to do it. And, and you kind of get the, the idea, and this happens a lot, that like, like the people that work for you, they just all kind of work for you, and they're there to like serve you and make you, your, your, you work, right? And so a lot of people come into a leadership role and they think like, I'm, I'm the person now. Everyone has to do what I have to say, what I say, right? And so when, when you take, I think the biggest interpersonal challenge I've seen with leaders is leaders that think that because they're in a seat that people are gonna do what they say, right? And they don't recognize that, that um, uh, influence in leadership is earned, right? And that uh, in my role, even though I technically have the ability to make like just about anything happen in the company, I, the times that I use like just pure the CEO seat to get a decision done are few and far between. And I view every time that I do that as it it it, it tends to to erode the trust that I have with the individual. So I'm always you know and and you know. It's, it's kind of a, a power versus finesse, right? When you're using your influence, it's, it's finesse, right? And uh, that's probably the biggest interpersonal challenge. Um, uh, the other one is just uh, not understanding why trust is low. And so uh, one of the books we use a lot is Speed of Trust by Stephen Covey. It breaks trust down into... 12 different categories, you know, trust is not something that's ethereal out there that, like you either have or you don't. Trust is something that can be broken down and it can be built. So I think the other thing is just like, we're having trust issues, why don't we trust each other? Let's break it down and try to figure out how we can make it better. Probably those are a couple things, so. What challenges have you uh, encountered with this woke culture change? If you've been in the business for 20 years, You've seen a definite change in the attitude of workers these days. Could you touch on how you deal with that? Well, to me, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really like to look at it like it's, it's a, like in our in our business. I don't think we have like a. Uh, I really like don't like to use the term like a woke culture. I understand that that's a, a brand we put on. It's the way we talk about it, but really, we're just talking about respecting each other. And to me, like, like that's an absolute at Master Control, is, is respecting people despite their individual differences. And so, like, man, if we see uh, disrespect for people because of, of a particular characteristic, that's something that, that we crack down on really hard. Um, I would say, like, as far as, I, I don't feel like as a CEO that my job is to, uh, to um, be an evangelist for any particular political cause. And so we definitely uh, avoid that. We avoid, uh, you know, we, we, in our, at our company, we don't uh, have religious or, or political discussions in our Slack channels. I mean, we still have some, but when we see it, you know, we politely talk to people about it. Um, so I would say at Master Control, it, it really hasn't been an issue. And we have a lot of, we have a lot of diverse views. So it's not, that's not, and we, we actually strive for that but to us, like we, you know, building a culture of respect and not letting it get to a point where things are really political. I mean, I, I've definitely, I've had situations where I've, I've personally called a, a number of, of, of individuals of a particular, you know, uh, type and, and, and asked them, hey, what, how are you experiencing this? But I didn't, 
I didn't broadcast that to my team or anything like that. That was just like, hey, we're trying to make it great uh, for everyone here. And so I think as long as you, as you stick to it that way, uh, I think you can you know, take the positive of that culture and build it into yours. I think that can be done. We've been able to do it so far. <laughs> so I think. All right. Thank you so much, John. This has been great. And uh, I trust that you guys are good at practical jokes now. We're go. <laughs> no, we don't do them anymore. No, yeah. <laughs> no more practical jokes. The older you get, the less fun you have, I guess. <laughs> that's yeah. true, that's true. But yeah. thank you so much for joining us. All right, thank you. Thanks for having me.